Life is hard. Life with chronic, critical, and complex health concerns is even harder. We all know someone who is struggling with health issues or disability. It might even be you. And in the pain and suffering, we wonder if it's possible to move from surviving to thriving. We struggle to hope, struggle to persevere, struggle to trust that God knows what He's doing. But in the struggle, there is real hope, and it's possible to be rooted and ready to weather the storm. Welcome to the Bluestem Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Hello, and welcome back to the Bluestem Project Podcast. It is good to be here with you. It is my sincere hope that by listening, you're better equipped and encouraged for the journey of suffering, hardship, and trial that comes with health issues and disability. And it's my prayer that you're drawn closer to God and rooted deeper in His Son, Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to continue our series on considering Jesus and the hostility He faced from sinners that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted in the trials of life. If you listen to the previous episode, I unpacked Hebrews 12.3 and the surrounding verses, but Hebrews 12.3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And we're to consider by way of comparison with ourselves and by thinking deeply and pondering this. And that's what we're going to do today and in the next number of episodes. And I mentioned that the way I'd like to go about this is by looking initially at the different types of people who oppose Jesus. And one thing that we'll see, and that I really have seen as I studied this, is it wasn't just one group of people or type of people who opposed him. It wasn't, say, just the rich or the poor or the powerful or the weak or people of this ethnicity or that or people from this region or this city or that. Rather, people within all of these various categories either loved him or hated him. And I want to start with this, just a brief overview of Jesus's mission and rejection in it. And I think it'll shed some light on why it wasn't just a certain category of person or type of person that didn't like him, but rather that within all these different categories, people were divided. So let me read John 1, 11 to you. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So think about this. Here he is. He leaves heaven. We're very hard for us to grasp how significant that is that he leaves such a place, right? There's no sin, corruption, pain, problems, death, uh, a, a place of glory and come to earth uh, where there's constant sin, corruption, pain, problems, and death. So not only does he leave heaven for earth, but he comes as a man. And we're told that th- it looked like this. This is Philippians 4, 7, 8, where it says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So from heaven to earth, from king to servant, God to God, man, from no humiliation to intense humiliation, from no suffering to intense suffering, from perfect love, adoration, and worship, to earth as a man enduring what Isaiah 53, 3 tells us, uh, it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Uh, Jesus himself said this about his mission. He said, you know, I came to seek and save the lost. He says that in Luke 19. And in Mark 10, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So I think it comes as some surprise that right away in John's gospel, he tells us he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He's widely 
rejected, the one who saves from sin's consequences, sin's power, sin's destruction, the one who in himself is perfect, and he's all-sufficient, he's the all-satisfying Savior, and he's spurned. And it's not just like the cold shoulder. Uh, you know, that would be one thing. It's way beyond being brushed aside. Uh, you know, it, it's not, you know, when a telemarketer calls you and it's a machine and you really brush it aside. Like, Jesus isn't brushed aside in that sort of sense. He is widely rejected with hostility. And John, in chapter 3, sheds some more light on why this is. He says this in verses 19 to 21, that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So here we're brought really straight to the heart of the matter. Why did Jesus experience such hostility from sinners? As we're told in Hebrews 12, 3, well, it's because people loved their sin more than their Savior and hated him and his sin-exposing light. So what I want to do now is look at how the common person was hostile to Jesus. I don't know what comes to your mind when I say commoner, but for me, I think of you know a class of people who aren't wealthy, they don't have trust funds, they're often living paycheck to paycheck, they're concerned about medical bills, how to make their car and mortgage payments, people, you know, you could say with real everyday problems. And in Jesus's day, this would have been, right, the hardworking farmer who was concerned about rain and crop failure and farm accidents, you know, who worked long, brutal hours in the sun and sometimes saw his work washed away for nothing, you know, got by from the, you know, the skin of his hands. I think of the commoners like the hired hand who's working long hours for the rich for meager pay or people who fished for a living, right? The smelly, unpredictable occupation could stay out all night, catch nothing. I think of, you know, the commoner was a person who made clothes by hand for her family and tried to sell some garments on the side for a day's bread. The commoner kept livestock, right? Another smelly, exhausting occupation. You know, I was stepped in a, once by a horse, didn't feel real great. You know, injury, you know, abounded for people like this. Um, your animals would run away, get killed by predators. There's no, you know, modern day insurance, you know, just loss, loss of income and loss of food. And it was these commoners who struggled to eke out an existence who needed rescue and a rescuer along with all the others. But they were still hostile to Jesus when he came to seek them, serve and save them by giving his life for theirs as a ransom. Now, the commoners, as I've studied this, were hostile towards Jesus for a variety of reasons, and they had a variety of responses. And by no means are we going to look at, you know, everything exhaustively, but I've picked out a few examples that I'd like to break down. Um, this is either their reasons for being hostile to him or some of their responses. One, he broke some of their traditions, and they hated him for it. You know, one response to what he was doing and saying is that they responded like, man, this guy has a demon. They, they said he was suicidally or suggested he was suicidally mad. They got incredibly mad and wanted to kill him because he told them the hard truth. They even got, you know, frustrated and asked him to leave when his act of mercy caused the loss of some of their property. We'll look at an example of that. And even when he's on trial and the Roman governor says, I find nothing wrong with the man. Not only do they want his death, they're so hostile they cry out for him to be crucified as the means of death. I mean, that, that, that takes quite a hatred and an inner, an inner anger that is really just boiling over. 
And then lastly, we'll look at how just even passerbyers and the criminals that are on the cross with him mock him. So let's start with the first example, Jesus breaking some of the traditions and the responses they had. So first, let's look at an example from John 5, uh, verses 1 to 17, where Jesus heals a man. And here's the situation, okay? Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts of the Jews. He enters an area with what we are told, uh, and I'll quote the verse here, says, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus goes up to this man and asks him if he wants to be healed. And the man gives an answer regarding what he believed to be a supernatural solution to his infirmity. In other words, there was a pool there uh, called the Bethesda pool, which he stated gets stirred up every once in a while. And anyone who enters it at that, at that point will get healed. And Jesus just says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And now the Jews around end up seeing him walking and carrying the bed he sat on and told him that he is breaking the Sabbath laws. And they ask him, you know, who told you to carry your bed? And then in verse 16 and 17, it says this about the situation. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So here we see common people hostile to Jesus because he broke their time-honored codes of conduct. And it, it really revealed their mistake and folly of ascribing to God the mere commandments of men. You see, God himself did institute the Sabbath as a day of rest for his people, but they had manipulated it and mauled it into a type of like self-serving code of legalism by adding commands that were not there. So the Old Testament did not expressly prohibit an activity like carrying a bedroll. But over time, uh, some of the Jews had added commandments such that forbade carrying an object even from like one domain to another. And Jesus shattered their illusion of legalistic goodness by healing a man and telling him to take his bedroll home. And think about this. This is a man who's been on this bedroll for 38 years. And people in the area would have known about him. They would have seen him. So to consider, here's this guy all of a sudden walking that you probably knew, or at least for some of them, probably knew had been paralyzed or, or whatever it was, unable to, to walk, walking around, your first thought is, hey, you're breaking this command, right? Like the obvious statement Jesus is making in this healing is that on the Sabbath, mercy and compassion trump legalistic duties. Yeah, like in another instance of healing on the Sabbath, when people get upset with him, he tells them, you know, who are you? You know, if you have a son or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to him when he said these things. So the Jewish commoners, as well as the elite, had codes of conduct that bound them together and separated them kind of from the other. And when this particular error was exposed by Jesus, they hated him for it. They hated him for exposing them, but also for adding the weight of God's authority and his claim of equality with God into the equation. Uh, he said in this passage, you know, my father is working until now, and I am working. And in verse 18, it says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the commoner was hostile to Jesus for exposing their legalistic man-made traditions. They were hostile toward him for claiming he had God's authority because he was God. And the things that he said to them would often seem like sheer insanity. And 
there were actually instances where they accuse him of having a demon. So in John chapter 7, a couple chapters later, uh, Jesus is, is in Jerusalem for another feast, the Feast of Booths. Uh, it was a feast instituted by God as a time for the Jews to remember God's leading and his provision as they journeyed in the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan. And the people would live in booths or temporary shelters for a week at the end of the agricultural season when the grapes and olives were harvested. And Jesus goes into the temple and starts teaching. And people are astounded. And it says in chapter 7, verse 15, how is it this man is learning when he's never studied? And Jesus responds by saying, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So here Jesus really drops bombs of truth on them, and like warring men in foxholes being shelled, they really can't stand it. So Jesus states his connection to God. My teaching is God's teaching. My authority is God's authority. My glory is God's glory. My identity is that of God. I have no falsehood in myself. And then he sears them by stating, none of you even keeps the law that you adhere to. You say you, you believe this and this is yours and you, and you follow it, but you, you don't actually do it. I mean, and their response I don't know if you've ever seen cattle branded, but I've participated once in branding cattle. And you, and you can see the calf just kind of re recoil at the heat of the branding iron. And that's what this crowd does. They were respond by saying, you have a demon. And in a sense, they're on to something right about Jesus. He's definitely a different type of being. They, right, they know this isn't the average Jedediah down the street, but they go 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction to label him. Think about it. They believe the Son of God is demon-possessed. I mean, whew. I mean, what a mistake. You and I have been mislabeled a time or two in our life, I'm sure, right? But were you ever called, did anyone ever say to you, like, hey, you're demon-possessed? You know, one intimately controlled by the Prince of Darkness himself. So think for a second what this pronouncement does. Uh, the passage tells us that it's within the context of a crowd that this is stated. So there's many people that have gathered, many in the presence of the Son of God listening to him, yet not aware of how much they need him. And, and recall for a second that Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Here the lost are all around him, those dying in their sins and in need of a Savior. And they're being told, this guy has a demon. I remember an it was probably about 10 years ago, I was talking with a young man on a beach in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we were talking about Christ, and he was really interested. He was paying attention. I was explaining, explaining the gospel to him. He expressed the, the needs he had in life. He expressed a understanding and a, and a sense of guilt and shame for his own sin, and I was explaining to him how Jesus is the solution for that. And on about four different occasions, uh, a girl who was his friend, came up to him and would try and grab him away and say, hey, don't talk to this this guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, you know, she really actually just mocked me and the message of Christ. And she'd pull him away, and he would say, no, I really want to listen to what he has to say. And he'd, he'd, I, was, I just kept standing there, and he'd come back to me, and we keep continuing the, the conversation. And this happened about three times, and then finally on the fourth, about the fourth instance, 
she grabbed him and really just kind of forced him to, to leave and end the conversation with me. And it was really, you know, incredibly sad. Here's this, this guy who saw his need to some degree for a savior, but he was being pulled away. And on a magnified level, that's what's going on in this passage. People are sitting around Jesus. They need him and they're being told, no, he's not God. He's actually possessed by a demon. Okay, so, so far, we've seen that the commoner opposed Jesus because he broke their tradition, pointing out that they held to something arbitrary. Uh, they've made something arbitrary to way too high of a standard. The commoner has seen that he's different, and they hear hard truth from him, and instead of believing him and following him, they label him as demon-possessed. Next, I want to read to you a passage where the commoner believes Jesus to be suicidally mad. I'm going to read about eight verses out of John 8. It says this, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where, am I, where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. How about you? Have you believed in him? Jesus here explains a couple monumental truths. To walk in light, not darkness, you need to follow the light of the world, him. And to not die in your sins or die under judgment and and eternal punishment for your sins, you need him. And this is a mixed crowd. There's, There's Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, and there's commoners. Both Jewish Pharisees and Jewish commoners suggest that he is suicidally mad. Instead of recognizing him as the light of the world, perfectly righteous, light in darkness, someone who's telling them the truth, that he's from above, he's from heaven, instead of recognizing that he's warning them about dying in their sins, they reduce him to a madman. And immediately after the verses we just read, it's revealed that their hostility is so great that they want to kill him. And that because he tells them the hard truth that finds no place then. Let me read the next few verses. This is John 8, 31 to 37. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So he he indicts them. You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth from God. I don't know if you've ever been a part of like an intervention with an alcoholic. I haven't, but I have a good friend who has, and they confronted you know, his alcoholic father, and they actually have done this on multiple occasions on his alcoholism and the horrific behavior that, that comes from it. And when they have done that, he and, his, and the rest of his family, his alcoholic father accuses them and attacks them vehemently and awfully because he can't handle the truth. And people are like that as well. When Jesus says, sin is real, you have it, I'm the only solution, you're a slave to it, you can't fix it on your own, people hate that. And the commoner was hostile to Jesus because of that. So the commoner, so far what we've said, is hostile to Jesus because he broke their tradition. They see something different in him and chalk it up to demon possession. They don't grasp his identity and teaching, believing him to be suicidally mad. They hear hard teaching and want to kill him. And next, what we'll look at is that they see some of his merciful actions as destructive rather than merciful. I want to read out of Luke chapter 8 a number of verses where people just do not understand what Jesus is doing and what this means for them. Let me start in verse 26. It says, They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. So this is Jesus and his disciples, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. When he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. When people went out to see what happened, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 
One commentary I looked at said this about how the people were seized with fear. And I'll quote it. While fearful reverence and awe are appropriate in the presence of Jesus, the fear of these townspeople is negative and seems to be wrongful, superstitious fear of Jesus' mysterious power, and perhaps a fear of further loss of their property, for their fear does not draw them to Jesus. Right, so here Jesus displays mercy to a suffering man possessed by a legion of demons, and I'm not going to explain to you more of my thoughts or what some of you know commentators' thoughts have been about why the demons go into the, the herd of pigs and it rushes down in and they all drown. But right, the, down, the townspeople, they lost something. Someone lost property, food. But rather than seeing this power that displayed incredible mercy in this man freed from his bondage, they just get scared and they see the loss of their property. And they want Jesus to leave. So rather looking and seeing Jesus' mercy and being drawn to him, they, they just see the loss of their stuff. And they're filled with fear. Rather than inquiring with Jesus more about, how you know, who are you? Why did you do this? They, like they could have sat there and asked a whole lot of questions and found out more. But they just ask him to leave. The, the, the Savior of the world is literally in their area and they want him gone. This might not be hostility, maybe in as extreme a measure as some of the other examples we've looked at or will look at, but certainly it is a rejection of Jesus, his mission, and his purpose for their lives. So let me just close with two examples of commoner hostility at the end of Jesus' life while he is on the cross. And the first one is that they cry out for the sentence of crucifixion. This is in Luke 23, starting verse 18. It says, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is pretty hard to imagine. They, they hate Jesus so much that they don't just want him, say, thrown in prison for life. They don't just want him dead. They want him tortured in the most brutal fashion possible. It is hard to imagine in the annals of human history a more torturous and awful death than what the Romans invented with crucifixion. Or actually, I don't think the Romans invented it, but they certainly perfected it. It was incredibly physically painful, but it was also incredibly emotionally painful. You're crucified naked. People are there, can walk by and see you and mock you. And here, even though the Roman governor really doesn't see anything wrong with Jesus. And he tries to point that out on multiple occasions. They say with absolute hatred, no, crucify him, crucify him. There's even uh, a traditional out. In other words, at this time of the year, Pilate would release a prisoner to them to show an act of mercy. And so he offers to them, Jesus, hey, I'll release him. You're mad at him, but let's just have an act of mercy. And they chose and wanted someone who 
was an insurrectionist and a murderer to be released instead of Jesus. Incredible hostility. I remember hearing a story, reading a story from a pastor named Richard Wormbrand who was Romanian, and he told this story about, I think, I believe it was in the 1960s under communism, that there was a young girl, on the, yeah, a young woman, who would witness to children and tell them about Jesus, and I think she even would hand out um, gospel tracts. And the authorities got wind of this, and it was illegal to do so in communist um, Romania at the time. And so they were going to arrest her. But in an act of unbelievable cruelty, instead of just going and arresting her, they waited until her wedding day. They heard that her wedding day was coming up. And there she is, about to be married. You know, got to be the best day in a young girl's life. And they burst in the back doors and come and clamp on, you know, these rough shackles on her to make it more painful. And apparently she says in response that, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's an honor to suffer for my heavenly bridegroom. And that the people who were watching this, you know, were horrified and weeping because they knew as she was taken away to prison, what would happen to her there. An incredible hostility. And Jesus, I, I really look forward to meeting this, this woman in heaven. I really do. I've told this story probably on dozens of occasions. But Jesus could understand what she went through. Incredible hostility towards her, he knew, because he had experienced it as well. So here's my last example. When Jesus is on the cross, and I'm going to take from Matthew 27, 39 to 40, it says this, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And a few verses later in verses 44 says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Can I, can I read this again, this same instance from the Gospel of Luke? And then I want to ask you a, a question or two. It says this about the criminals when they derided him. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So there are two criminals here, under judgment from the Romans, both being crucified with Jesus. Both are guilty. The one criminal acknowledges that. And he says to the other one, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? You know, we're justly receiving this. You know, it's our due reward for our deeds. Can I, can I say something that's hard to hear? All of us, all of humanity, God tells us, are guilty criminals before him, before a just and holy God. And we stand to be sentenced to eternal punishment. Yet God has provided a way out. We can see something beautiful in the most awful and dire situation almost imaginable, a crucifixion. There's two criminals next to Jesus. One rejects him and mocks him, but the other comes to fear God and recognizes who
who Jesus is, his holiness, recognizes he's done nothing wrong, and he requests fellowship with Jesus. Fellow guilty sinner, which criminal are you? The rejecter and mocker of Jesus or the recognizing believer in him? I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Blue Stem Project. It's been a pleasure having you. I know we talked about some some heavy and weighty things, and I uh, prayerfully hope you will take them to heart. If you have more questions or need to process some things, I'd encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John and start reading. And as a way of closing, I just want to remind you that the Blue Stem Project exists to equip and encourage you in the suffering, hardships, and trials of life that come with health issues and disability. We do this by helping root you in Christ and by giving you the tools you need to be ready for life's greatest obstacles. It'd be an honor to take this journey with you. Please do hit the subscribe button and tell a friend or family member experiencing health issues and medical disability about the Blue Stem Project. Thank you.